0: Wow, we got something.
1: We're in. Greetings. Hello. Shall we play a game? Oh, love to. Let's play. Global Thermonuclear War.
2: Hello, everybody. And welcome back to the Shirley. You can't be serious podcast. I am here with my friend, Jason Colvin. Jason, I got a story for you. You Ready for this? Yes. Okay. In 1983. Heads of the military believed that a real nuclear attack was about to occur. They began readying their nuclear forces, placing air units on alert and loading nuclear warheads onto combat planes in preparation for war. And all of this was based upon a misinterpretation of what was a simulation. Something they should have known was just a war game. You want to know what the plot twist is? What's the plot twist? This happened four months after the movie war games came out this is real life plot twist this is not the plot of the movie this is the plot of real life a situation called the Able archer 83 incident where nato was conducting war games the soviet union was sure that it was all just a ruse and they literally manned their planes loaded the nuclear warheads and we came other than the cuban missile crisis we came closer to nuclear war at that moment, and nobody knew what was going on over here at all. Really, we're gonna tell you more about that story That's a little bit later. Later.
0: Hey, wait! Before you get any yeah. further, I, I still really enjoy how, like Gene Hackman, you say nuclear yeah. all the time. I knew it's gonna come. Up.
2: <laughs> I can't help it. I can't nuclear. Help it. I, I, I learned the word by watching <laughs> Quest for Peace. That's how I know that word. That's why I say nuclear. Okay, fantastic. Guys, we are blessed to be joined by a very special guest today. We have a Patreon member of all things. He hit us up and he said, love the show. And I said, great. You have any episodes you'd like to hear? And he said, "Uh, it'd be great if I could hear an intelligent uh, podcast about war games and AI and that sort of thing. And I said, super, why don't you come do that for us? And so we are here today with Dr. Chad Briggs, a global security expert. He advises global organizations on the intersection between climate change and national security. He has advised the U.S. Department of State, the U.S. Air Force, the Swedish military, the EU, the U.S. Department of Energy, all kinds of other academic organizations. He's an intelligent guy, but an underachiever and alienated from his parent. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. That was Matthew. I got a
1: little too far there on that one.
2: Chad, it is so wonderful to have you with us. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you, guys. Glad to be here.
0: Chad, would you say you're a little more Dabney Coleman or are you more General Beringer on this deal?
1: Um, I, I'm more I'm more a Professor Falcon, really. Awesome. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Nice.
2: <laughs> that is fantastic. So just to give you guys an idea of this notion of the intersection between national security and climate change, in April of 2011, they are conducting war game scenarios. It's a simulation. It is led by Air Force Colonel, I'm not kidding, Wilbur Wright. What? <laughs> yes. He, he led the simulation, but the participants were presented with four different scenarios. One was that the Mexican government had collapsed. The other was that Iran was carrying out a nuclear test. The third was that China was taking control of the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea. And the fourth was the eruption of Mount Spur, the volcano in Alaska. And a lot of the officers laughed off this fourth option until a couple of days later when they realized that they couldn't see anything on the ground because all of the volcano ash had basically eliminated all of their aerial observation capabilities. And so that is kind of Chad's specialty is how does environmental change affect national security and potential warfare did i get that about right
1: yeah i mean technically it was more they didn't want to fly through the ash clouds because that, that's really dangerous and if you're trying to get aircraft from north america to asia kind of hard to miss alaska so it, <laughs> it it just it just sort of threw off a lot of their assumptions about stuff but yeah it, it was trying to just insert ideas of well you know we always assume that environment is it's there it's a steady state but what if it you know what if we get thrown a curveball and uh, something happens you just don't expect.
2: Yeah. So a few days into the scenario real tornadoes and thunderstorms started happening in Alabama and they're listening to news reports and one of the
1: participants leans over to Chad and says is this really happening or is this part of the simulation? <laughs> and unfortunately that was real. That that was a huge outbreak of tornadoes that night. That was one of the the things we shoot for is uh for people just not to know necessarily if something's real or if it isn't but that's also one of the most famous lines from war games
0: i was just going to mention this today coincidentally is the 43rd anniversary of the eruption of mount st helens oh yeah which i take would be a big deal uh satellite images
2: and that type of thing so 1980 the world becomes covered in ash yep
1: yeah and and unfortunately i'm old enough to remember that
0: me too today we're going to compare war games from 1983 yeah to Tron from 1982.
2: Yeah, they were. it was the first time for a lot of folks to be seeing this type of stuff pretty accurately por- portrayed in a lot of circumstances. Obviously, a lot of fantasy involved with Tron, but still had some components that were very cutting edge and brand new to the audiences that were watching them, for sure.
1: Chad, what are your memories of these two movies? Well, I, I, I was in grade school, I think, when these came out. Um, Tron completely blew me away. You know, in, in terms of its vision of computers, it's its computer graphics. I, d- I didn't quite understand the story. Um, and we can get into that just because Flynn, the Jeff Bridges character, was already living the dream because he already owned an arcade. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> what, what more could you get than that? Right, right. Um, War Games, I remember. And, you know, my brother and I were both into computers. He ended up getting a master's in computer science and works at Los Alamos now. But, uh, and, and this kind of inspired us a lot. But I didn't understand war games until I was much older. And I understood the politics. Both of them sort of caught up to technology, but in really different ways. So they're, they're, they're really, really influential for me. And of course, I also remember the Tron uh, arcade game. I believe yeah, it actually made more money than the movie itself. Yep. We absolutely
0: have to talk about that.
2: By the way, uh, Jason pointed this out, and sure enough, I saw it. As you come in on David Lightman in that first arcade scene, as it pans across the arcade, you see very prominently the video game Tron.
0: Along with the much less influential Jungle Hunt game. (laughs) You didn't
2: like jungle hunt? I like jungle hunt. <laughs> I was but... better
1: jungle hunt than Tron.
2: The nerves that I would build up whenever I was having to fight those spiders, <laughs> the, the 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 spiders, which I, were there spiders in the movie? Yeah. Okay. They call them grid bugs. Oh, right, right. The grid bugs. grid bugs. Okay. Yeah. So it was just spiders to me, that one. And then when you got a couple of levels up, when you were diving into the master control rainbow spinny thing and it was going so fast and you were going so fast anxiety to the max but i would still shovel my por- quarters in for sure
0: oh my gosh yes okay which one are we which one are we going to talk about first here?
2: uh i'd say let's talk about war games first yeah? yeah yeah all right
1: see that sign up here up here yeah defcon that indicates our current defense condition it should read uh, defcon five which means peace it's Still on a four because of the little stunt you pulled. Actually, if we hadn't caught it in time, it might have gone to DEFCON 1. You know what that means, David? No, what does that mean? World War III.
2: Chad, tell us tell us what you know, or you know, give us some information on how things went from the development of the movie War Games to when you got involved yourself doing them, like what's what's kind of the history there? I, I talked a little bit earlier about the Abel Archer incident in 83. And part of what happened in that scenario was that they started using a lot of new technology so what do you know what do you know about what happened between 1983 and whenever you started
1: participating
2: live and in living color with true war game simulations
1: well i could tell you there were actually a couple other incidents too and i won't go into detail about it but but you have november 1979 that was another nuclear alert that was that was thrown off by someone mistakenly putting a training tape into the computer which then was interpreted as being real, because, of course, the computer doesn't know the difference.
2: That came up when they were writing the script for War Games, because they began to question, you know, could this really happen? Would the military really not know what was going on in this situation? And literally turned on the news story. And Walter Cronkite is saying, well, for three minutes, we thought we were at the brink of nuclear war. And it turns out somebody just left a simulation tape inside the tape player.
1: Yeah. And, and something similar happened uh, the following summer. So June 1980. That was a computer glitch. But the people at NORAD suddenly saw thousands of nuclear missiles headed for the United States, and they had to figure out, is this real or not? Or is this just, and it turned out it was just the computer hiccuping and uh, just throwing out odd radar returns that didn't actually exist.
0: Turns out Chad was just playing missile command in the next room. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so
2: you guys you and your brother were into computers Did you do any uh you do any hacking back then try to sneak into any uh school oh I, w- I would n-
1: I would never have done anything like that. <laughs> no I, I I was an overachiever in school so I, I didn't have to change grades but uh and I will say my my junior high principal was pretty smart because he co-opted me I think he knew and this is like 1986 1987 so he was testing out some sort of new library system, you know, get the computer online at the school. This is the first time that they were really trying this. And, and so he invited me in and said, hey, we want you to figure this out and whether it's worth doing. And it's sort of like, a, I realized later, okay, this is keep your enemies close, closer, right. you're right. And <laughs> know what they're up to. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew how to do those sorts of things. Cause sometimes, I mean, honestly, it is so easy to break into computers sometimes. Um, some of the back doors and, you know, what they don't address is that Oftentimes it's just people making the mistakes. You know, well, either you're leaving the scenario tape in the computer or you just didn't put in the right password. So yeah, all those sorts of tricks we knew. And partly that's because when I started working on cybersecurity, you sort of have to know this. And I worked more on the human side of cybersecurity. It sort of inspired us just to sort of know how computers work. And and maybe both movies inspired that because we were so taken in with this idea that, hey, you can create programs. And they're sort of like these little living things and they're yours and they're your identity right and and they live inside the computer but the internet stuff i really didn't get into heavily until probably the mid-90s
2: so chad listened to our best of 88 episode and said boy was i in an entirely different world than you guys were at that point (laughs) Uh, i i made him send the list but do you do you remember it do you know what your top five is from 88
1: chad partly i was teasing you guys I I thought you're sending me emails asking about albums by Poison. So why don't I just throw in Melissa Etheridge and see what you guys think? (laughs) Um, I don't know. It's a transition time, partly for me because I was leaving the U.S. And I think partly for music, too, because 88, you start getting Milli Vanilli. By 89, you've got what? New Kids on the Block? Yeah, uh, you do. Boy bands? Yeah. So when when I looked at my computer, all the music from the 80s that I had and like the compilation files that I'll have, or it would be like you know, best of 1985 for one hour. It stops in 1987. By that point, I was just cut off. I, I just, I had no connection to it anymore. And, you know, I went to Europe and just started listening to 70s music. because That's what everyone is listening to. So you were you were in Europe
2: around that time and you mentioned something about, I think in an email to us about uh-huh.
1: AHA. <laughs> yeah, I was, you like, I, was I, I was in Norway. i hesitant to listen to you your know, episode it, it, because you're yeah, calling them a one-hit I mean, wonder. But... you guys... For you guys to say that AHA was a one-hit wonder was for anyone who's ever lived in Norway, you know, some sort of heresy. Uh, Personally, I like The Sun Always Shines on TV better than Take On Me. Wow It's all about where you were That's right right. That's true What you were doing at the time At the risk of forgetting
2: to do this Before we're done with our day At the risk of somebody calling me away And I don't get to ask this question On one of your very first emails I I asked you how you came across us You said you're looking for 80s podcast You came across our Toto episode Really got engaged with our Dirty Dancing The album episode And you mentioned I won't name a specific country At the risk of offending somebody But there's a country over in Europe that the military has a strange fascination and love affair with the movie Dirty Dancing. Can you give me more details, please?
1: I uh, Yeah, I, I won't say the particular country, but I will say there's more than one country. I won't say it's the entire military. I just know people in the military who have a strange affiliation with it. But Yeah, that movie resonates. I mean, you guys said on your Dirty Dancing podcast that that was the highest selling album ever in Germany. It did.
0: The Thriller of Germany.
1: And and being a good professor, I had to go up and look it up. And yeah, it was true. Uh, But. (laughs) <laughs> it, I think it resonated with people in a way, you know, because in the U.S. we had this idea of nostalgia for this sort of innocent time in the U.S., the early 60s. And so Lucas gave us American Graffiti. But Americans wouldn't care about a bunch of teenage kids driving around Modesto all night, right? But they had Dirty Dancing, which, which is innocent America. It's the sort of America that they wanted to believe in. And the music, I, I think, really helped that so much because it was, it was this sort of mishmash of you know, fifties and sixties and even stuff from the eighties that they just loved, you know, and, and to have a movie and a soundtrack, start with the runettes like that. Uh, I think it was just intoxicating for so many people.
2: Did I tell you that Chad has driven his bike, not once, but twice up to the resort where they filmed dirty dancing in Virginia.
1: Yeah, man, that's awesome. I love that. Jason is it's, a location. It's it's, guy. it's, yeah. Yeah. it's actually a semi-famous mountain for cyclists because because it's a really tough one to climb especially if you do the backstand but yeah the first time i got up there i didn't even know where i was and i looked around and i was like wait a second this this looks
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's the staircase the baby danced on
1: fantastic that's awesome
0: okay so we want to get in the origin story of war games
2: okay yeah sure okay so war game starts off with lawrence lasker he uh, gets fascinated with a guy we've all heard of at this point named stephen hawking who was less famous at that point in the general world but was super famous in the science world and also uh, is interested in the fact that he has ALS and this idea that this you know genius who could potentially come up with the theory of everything might not be able to communicate it to us and so he thinks okay I want to have a story where this older genius finds this younger genius that he can communicate with and that's how this story gets passed along by the way side note the meeting that he had in mind it was supposed to be the the old geniuses in his mechanical wheelchair sitting on a pier trying you know fishing and the the young kid walks up from behind and when he turns around the old man is john lennon
0: that would have been amazing to see john lennon in this role
2: yeah and obviously unfortunately timing wise that didn't work out it so did well. not work out there were a couple of uh different important assassination uh attempts and unfortunately, John Lennon's was a success. So anyway, Lawrence Lasker has this idea. He calls up his college roommate, whose name is Walter Parks, and they start working together on this script. And they spend, this is 79 or so, they spend quite a bit of time developing this genius master and genius student story. They have this idea that he's going to be a 13-year-old kid at California Berkeley, which sounds like real genius to me.
0: It does sound like real genius.
2: I don't know if they like snagged that idea and redid it with uh, with real genius or not, but I, that's what it sounded like. Anyway, at some point in this process, they meet a very famous guy named Peter Schwartz. Peter Schwartz is what we call a futurist, and that just means he's like looking at different analytical models and trying to predict what's going to happen in certain fields in the future. And he says, hey, you know, computer games are getting really popular right now. And I don't know if you guys have looked at this, but those computer games really seem to resemble the same screen images that you see over at NORAD with all of their war models on there. Of course, that's a little light bulb for both of them. Okay. Sure. This, is, this is great. How do we combine these ideas, right? And then, of course, they start getting interested in the hacker culture, which it's starting to really ramp up at this point. And Lawrence Lasker has a friend from Yale named Ron Rosenbaum. Who writes this article called The Subterranean World of the Bomb and talks about these military simulations that go on that are basically like games. They think, wow, if you know, if only we could get into NORAD and look around and see what it's like in there, we'd really have some meat for our story. Well, as it turns out, NORAD actually invites Hollywood types out. I'm watching the movie, and I'm like, there's no way. Right. There is no freaking way they're going to have a guided tour in the middle of the war games si- simulations. The bus from Birmingham. Turns out they do. <laughs> Turns out they do. That's incredible. So they get uh, they manage to get themselves out to NORAD. They're going on this tour. They're about to get back on the bus, and this guy named General Hardinger stops them and says, Boys, I hear you're writing a story about me. And they're like... Uh, yeah. He goes, well, let's go, let's go talk. Let's go have some drinks. And they're like, well, we got to get back on the bus. And he goes, I got 43 men under my command right now. I think I can get you back to your hotel. (laughs) And so they go with him and start talking about things. And it turns out very similar to the character that they develop. He feels that it is vital that human beings have some sort of involvement with the decision to set a nuclear strike into play. You got any info on that, Chad? I mean, could it happen that there is no human involvement?
1: Well, it's, it's kind of tricky. I mean, if you think back to the the plots for Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove, right, which, which were influences on Wargame, and they're both on this idea of accidental nuclear war, that in Dr. Strangelove, you get a general who just goes crazy and sets off a, an attack that he shouldn't. In Failsafe, it's, they, they mistakenly think that a civilian airliner is a bomber and... Bombers get sent off to Moscow that they can't control. All these strategies have been based on this idea of launch on warning. So you don't wait until the bombs actually hit before you launch your own missiles, right? But that means you have to rely upon what the computers are telling you. So you don't have plane spotters out there in Alaska actually just looking for the missiles. You're relying upon radars and satellites to tell you that something's happening. But they can be wrong, right? So it's always it's always a bit fantastical to begin with that okay, whatever you see on the screen is just what the computer's telling you is on the screen and you have to trust that. Right. So, yeah, there always had to be some sort of control there. Right. The two keys uh, that, that you saw famously at the first scene that you've seen in other movies, too, like Crimson Tide. Uh, and, and that's that's always been there, both for the U.S. and the Soviets, precisely because they always knew that, well, you can't always trust what the computer is seeing because the computer can't make judgments on whether something's real or not.
0: Crimson Tide is a great reference, by the way. I love that movie. Yeah. They get the message to launch and then it's uh, sort of corrupted or incomplete and they have to decide no this is a partial message no this is the real message we need to launch no we don't need to launch
2: yeah i think there's there's an actual historical event that's related to that as well there was i think a similar situation maybe i think it was the soviets though but it was that incomplete message and like i think they had three guys who had to do something and two of the three were like we're doing it and one guy was a holdout and averted a nuclear
1: catastrophe because of it.
2: Thank God for uh, him. If
1: that's the Petrov incident? Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. So there was a colonel by the name of uh, Stanislav Petrov, and he was in charge of this early warning system that had been set up by the Soviets. It was a satellite system to watch for missile launches from the United States. And he got this report from the satellites that there were missiles being launched. Um, they couldn't exactly tell. It was, it was maybe five missiles. And his protocol, right, his checklist said, you need to report this. You, you, it's not a judgment. You're just a lieutenant colonel. You're just supposed to report it up the chain of command and then things get moving. But he knew that the system was kind of glitchy. He knew that while the U.S. wouldn't attack us with just a couple of missiles, they would attack with thousands of missiles. So he refused to he refused to report it. Uh, and of course he didn't tell anyone for a long time because he would have gotten into trouble. But if, if that had gone on and, and you have to remember the context, 1983 was a really, really, uh, bad time between the U S and the Soviets. So September of 1983, the Soviets had just shut down Korean airliner, you know, the Korean airliner 747. And only three weeks later, this happened, you know, this Petrov incident. And then only three weeks after that was the incident, the Able Archer that you were mentioning earlier. right? Which also yeah. coincidentally was the same week that War Games was released in West Germany. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, that is cool. Life imitating art. Right.
2: Well, and just and just to finish the story, like Reagan has come in. I mean, we for 20 years things have kind of been cooling down. And then Reagan comes in and turns the the heat up to high. He calls them the evil empire. They start engaging in some serious psyops, which when I watched the when I was watching the documentary and John Badham is talking about how he changed the name of the computer from Psyop to Whopper, he's like, Psyop doesn't make any sense. I'm like, it makes perfect sense because it's psychological operations, but okay. Anyway, <laughs> so they're doing and, and I love this. So what what the US would do is they would have these planes, these attack planes, fly straight for Soviet airspace. And at the very last second, right before they enter the space, they would veer off. It was the global thermonuclear war equivalent of, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Yeah, really. It's fantastic. And so that is why the Soviets were at the top of their paranoia. They were completely afraid of what's going on. And so NORAD is doing these real war game simulations. They add all these other components and the Russians think, this is a ruse. This is a fake. They're really about to attack. And they literally put everything in place to begin their retaliatory strike before the first U.S. missiles hit.
0: I could just hear Maverick and Goose saying, we can't shoot this son of a bitch, we might as well have fun with him.
1: But yeah, once things get started, it's, it's hard to stop. So during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy told all of his advisors to read The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman because that talked about the start of World War One, And once you get things started, you, you can't back down. It's really tough. Uh, just because organizationally, things get moving. And once someone starts firing, other people start firing back. It's like right. being in a boxing match. you know, Once someone punches you, you, you got punched back even a little bit harder.
2: Yeah, we didn't, like I said, we didn't even know that this had occurred. We did not know that the Soviets were about to nuke us out of existence until like almost two years later, there was a Soviet double agent named Oleg Gordievsky, he was a double agent and eventually they figured out that he was a double agent and they were about to they sneak in, they get him back out and he's the one that tells them, "Hey, this is how close everybody came to getting annihilated."
0: Well, I'm sitting there playing with my Transformers and listening to Michael Jackson, <laughs> I was about to be glowing in the dark, huh? I never learned to swim <laughs>
1: <laughs> i mean people were scared then the the europeans remember the the euro missile crisis in 1983 it's what they referred to and by then threads had already been released in the uk right which was the uk equivalent of the day after tomorrow and and that yeah. was a pretty brutal movie you can find that i think on youtube these days uh, but then i think it was 1983 that was when day after tomorrow came out in the u.s and and that scared the hell out of me as a kid uh, yeah. I mean that—that's what I—I I remember that more than War Games, at least at first. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So okay.
0: the company that put Whopper, you know, the uh, the U.S. military that put Whopper into play obviously didn't work out at the end of War Games. So Cyberdyne perfected that <laughs> a few years later, and then Skynet. No, I'm just kidding. Actually, there's a lot of similarities here between the Terminator franchise and War Games. I think.
2: I don't know why we're talking about all this old stuff. Why don't we talk about something that's relevant today? Yeah. Right. So yeah, com- okay, computers so, would never tell us what to do. Exactly. There's no way that they can actually learn and be intelligent. So the guys who are writing war games, Sparks and Lasker, they have hit up this guy named Leonard Goldberg. He's a producer. He's like, hey, go write the script. After a year of waiting, he's like, I said, write it, not carve it in stone. Let's get something. <laughs> but he's expecting this genius mentor to genius student story that they proposed to him. So a little while later, secretary comes in and says, well, they didn't write the story. They said they're going to write, but they wrote this war movie instead. He's like, war movie? And then she's like, why don't you just read it? We got it. It's something. And he reads it and says, thank you for an awesome weekend. It is a fantastic story. Yeah. So he shops it around to various studios, gets turned down repeatedly, ends up that United Artists MGM says, yes, we're willing to do this. And that is what we call a green light. Okay, so War Games came out first. We're going back in time now, a year before when Tron came out. 1982. 1982. So earlier than that, I'm going to go back to, let's say, 76. 76. This guy named Steven Lisberger is a aspiring animation artist has even put together a little studio of his college friends about five people uh, called Lisberger Studios he gets introduced to this new crazy invention called pong pong that's
0: mind-blowing
2: yeah and he is inspired he is like holy crap I I gotta make a movie about video games
0: hey let's talk about that for just a second yeah so if you're younger than we are you don't really grasp how mind-blowing that pong was at that time the idea that you could actually compete using electronics on a
1: tv screen
0: was unbelievable at the time
1: yeah there were so many quarters wasted uh invested invested in time that that (laughs) was we were training, (laughs) training training Atari even called that uh, Special Olympics, (laughs) right? Video Olympics.
0: (laughs) When I was growing up, my church had a gym and a little ping pong area. Mm -hmm. We had Space Invaders, we had Asteroids, and we had Donkey Kong. Guess what I did all the
2: time? Read your Bible and prayed?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, that would be incorrect. I played a crap ton of Donkey Kong.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, Chad, did you have an Atari growing up? Yeah. Yeah, we had an Atari 2600 you yes of course so pong breakout uh eventually pitfall which was to me the atari game of all atari games eventually tron deadly discs was an incredible
0: 2600 game
2: so i know we're going to talk about uh we're going to talk about the video game here in a little bit but yes the deadly disc was supposed to be a part of the original game they didn't even have time to get it done that's okay. Four games was plenty for me. Unfortunately, it comes out right at the time that video games are starting to, the bubble is starting to burst.
0: I don't care. That Tron, the black light from that video game and the music, the Wendy Carlos music blaring through the arcade. I put a million dollars worth of quarters in that
2: game myself. Awesome. Love that game. So Lisberger is inspired by Pong. He thinks, okay, how can I do Pong combined with Alice in Wonderland and the wheels start turning, right? But he is an animator. He is not a live movie producer. And in 1979, he gets $10,000 from AFI, a grant from them, to do a seven-minute short film. And it involves animals competing in the Olympics. And the name of the show is Animal Olympics. Yeah. Very creative. Animal Olympics. That one does well enough that NBC decides to fund a full film, which is a seven-figure budget, he leaves Boston, goes out to California with his partner, um, and they start working on this full fledged Animal Olympics movie. Go ahead. I got something for you that you skipped over. Okay.
0: In 1973, he won the Student Academy Award for a little short film called Cosmic Cartoon, okay. where a gladiator
2: throws glowing discs in 1973. Oh, wow. That's solid, dude. I I, got to tell you, I saw that he won that thing. I'm like, I'm going to, that's too much. I'm going to cut that out. I did not realize that the game actually comes into direct play. That's fantastic. fantastic. So he ends up producing two 30 minute parts, a animal Olympics, winter games and an animal Olympics summer games, but only the winter games gets aired on NBC because the Soviets come into play again. They invade Afghanistan and the U.S. boycotts the Olympics. And so they are taking all Olympic-related things off of the boob tube. And so he's got these two pieces, only one of which the rest of the world has seen. Fortunately, he gets a deal with HBO, puts those two parts together, adds about another 30 minutes of additional footage, and it airs exclusively on HBO and gains a cult following. And I got to say, I remember, I looked at the pictures here and I remember this uh, cartoon. I remember seeing this on HBO. I feel like there's a naked lion in there somewhere, like a naked female lion, anamorphic thing. Yeah. That'd have been a reason for me to remember, it. (laughs) but it was 1980. What are you going to do? So interestingly, one of the animators on this series, Brad Bird. Get out of here. No. Yeah. Brad Bird, one of his very first credits is he is an animator on uh, the Animal Olympics. Also, you had the voices of the characters were Gilda Radner, Billy Crystal, and Perry Shearer.
0: Really? Yeah. That's fantastic. By the way, flashback to our best movie since 2000 episode. Right. Where we talked extensively about The Incredibles.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because you picked it as number one. Because it's best movie since 2000. Well, okay. I don't know if I agree with you there, but we'll keep on going. Okay. Okay, so why am I telling you about Animal Epics when we're here to talk about Tron? Because the opening studio credits marked the very first appearance of the character Tron. At this point, it was a mascot for Lisberger's company, and it was more like an electric light, and it was yellow instead of blue. Okay. But do you know where the, the name Tron comes from? Electron? Yeah, Electronics. Electronics? This is the Tron in the middle of Electronics. That is it. Yes. Awesome. So the original Tron character actually looked like the, the Cylons from Battlestar Galactica, except they had a beard. Like it was a big bearded guy with that kind of look about him.
0: You're talking about the, the appearance of these things, the appearance of the characters in the movie Tron. Yeah. You know why Jeff Bridges has a little skirt type of thing that he wears. He literally has Morgan
2: was in the movie with him (laughs) in her own tight little outfit.
0: Basically. Yes. (laughs) To uh, keep the film modest. Apparently,
2: right. Jeff Bridges
0: is—he's—he's uh, he's the Huey Lewis of the movie
1: world, huh? It—it it was a Disney film by then. You got to—you got to.
0: His deadly disc was showing a little too much, so they had to cover him up.
1: That's hilarious. Hey, Jason, I—I I was
2: going to tell you there's another podcast that's covered Tron recently that you should go check out. Oh, yeah, what is it? So the name of the podcast is the All 80s Movies Podcast. Yeah, Bill and Jason, they're good buddies over there. Oh, yeah, you know them. Yeah, I do. Yeah, they do great stuff. They've just covered Tron. Be sure and go and check out their episode on Tron. That is the All 80s Movies Podcast, available on all streaming platforms. Yeah, in fact, they did The
0: Outsiders and Tron recently, so we're kind of crossing paths a couple different ways. Yeah, Definitely go check them
2: out. They're good friends over there. All 80s Movie Podcast. So they planned to use the money that they had borrowed against the anticipated profits of Animal Olympics to develop the storyboards for Tron, but then this article appears in Variety magazine, and this guy named Alan Kay sees the article. Alan Kay reads this article in Variety, and Alan Kay, if you don't know who he is, is a pioneer of the computer world. He is a computer scientist. He is responsible largely for the object-oriented programming and the Windy Wing graphical user interface that Xerox came up with that, you know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs stole the ideas from. He's a mastermind of computers. He sees this little article in Variety and he calls up Steve Lisberger and says, I want you to make me a consultant on your movie. And he's like, hmm. Okay, and he goes, and also, you don't need to do this hand-drawn animation stuff. You can do the animation with computers. And so that's how, in 1982, we get one of the very first uses of CGI.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. You know, when I watched this movie, there's some effects that are a little hokey for today. But back in 1982, this was mind-blowing
1: stuff. Yeah, for them to have a computer that had what two megabytes of RAM—that I mean—that's nothing now. But back then, it was—it was just, yeah, it was mind blowing. And certain scenes, like the life light, light cycles, you know, still kind of holds up. It, uh, oh yeah, the light cycle and stuff it, is incredible. And back then, though, it was just beyond belief. It's amazing. I mean,
2: there was nothing like it at the time at all.
0: I'll use more stories than that to make this podcast.
2: <laughs> <laughs> to make a phone call. Yeah. Yeah. So Steve Lisberger has been working with this friend of her his named Bonnie McBird. She's an actress. And so she starts working on him with the story. Alan Kay comes into the project and she develops the character Alan, the creator of Tron and the movie. Alan Kay, yeah. After Alan Kay, yes. And she suggests Robin Williams as the Flynn character because she wants him to be fun and kind of crazy. And so she gets credit in this as the story by. They definitely worked on the story together, and Alan Kay was heavily involved. But basically, there's maybe one line in the whole thing that she composed that ends up in the movie. And later on, they end up having kind of a bitter, kind of legal battle about writing credits for the movie, but turns out okay for her in the end because she and Alan Kay become so close that they actually end up getting married and have been married since Really? Yeah. That's fantastic. So they develop the script. They get rejected by a great many studios who just don't get it, but they ultimately get picked up by Disney.
0: Yeah, so in fairness, I didn't really get it in 1982 either, but one company that did was Disney. They decided to do it. Now, this is a time when Disney is kind of feeling their way out of the 70s. They're trying to branch out. Do more live action stuff they've swung and missed three times like swung hard and missed the black hole yeah which i liked as a kid but it wasn't star wars
1: in in fairness nothing could be star wars but That's black true. hole i i asked so many questions of my poor mom of astrophysics and cosmology <laughs> uh that you know eventually did help inspire me to actually study the physics but
2: okay it was, it, was your
1: mother a physicist or was she just the person in the room that knew more than you she <laughs> was just the poor person who had taken me to the movie and i expected her to know these things
0: right <laughs> why is the robot in hell mom what the heck is going on here <laughs> that movie scared the crap out of me as a kid that one scene maximilian still
1: up... ranks as one of the the really toughest robots they've ever created yeah no doubt so it was a swing in the miss in the 70s but we still like it today
0: yeah
2: okay what, yeah. what else you got what are their other three big- the
0: other swing and miss is another movie called midnight madness i don't remember it no chad nope never heard of it okay all right and the other was a movie that i actually saw the trailer for i remember watching it in the theater it may have been when i saw a black hole it's called the watcher in the woods
2: no i got nothing it has sounds Holly like a horror Johnson, movie
0: yeah. It, well, it kind of it was like a, it's kind of a ghost story for, for Disney. Okay. Betty Davis was in, I think may have been her, one of her last movies. Anyway, all three of those tanked and Disney was still trying to find the way. So they say, okay, yeah, we'll do your video game movie. That sounds cool. They read the script. They punted it back to him and said, hey, we like what you're doing here. There's some religious aspects to this story. This is stuff I never picked up on at the time. The idea of, do you believe in users? How would I get here if there's not a user? So there's there's some spiritual aspects to this. Nobody yeah. I talked about that. Yeah, for sure. And Disney actually wanted to emphasize those. Right. So they, they punted it back to him, says, bring more on this. They bring in Wendy Carlos to do the music. Wendy Carlos had done A Clockwork Orange and The Shining.
2: Yeah fantastic soundtrack like that may be the best feature of the whole movie that and the animation might be the two top features of the movie.
0: well and i know the music so well from the video game right you walk in an arcade you hear wendy carlos down the hall there's tron way over there and then you also have two journey songs on this soundtrack
2: that's right they're they're barely there but they're there
0: you know why the journey was picked because Super Tramp was unavailable. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs>
2: yeah, I like Super Tramp.
0: <laughs> but this is the most interesting thing to me. So you talked about how they're, when they shot this, they're in colorless bodysuits. There's no blue glowing, nothing. It's white and black, and there's no life to it when they film it. And they add all that, of course, later. But this was originally scheduled for a Christmas 1982 release, okay? But Don Bluth had left Disney and taken a bunch of animators with them to go create this thing called the secret of nim. Right. And Disney was pissed about that and said, let's go head to head and go kick the secret of nim's butt. Okay. And so they moved it to the summer of 82. Well, the problem with the summer of 82, and we've already discussed it in a three-part podcast <laughs> that we did right, was you were up against blade runner, the thing star Trek to the wrath of con poltergeist, but really E.T. E.T. And that was sort of the death blow for, for all these movies and really was not a brilliant move by Disney. I mean, and
1: Jason, didn't didn't a lot of the Disney animators refuse to work on this? That's
0: interesting. What do, you, what do you got for me on that? I don't
1: know. Well, a lot of the animators didn't want to work on it because just like today, they thought that, well, if you computerize everything, then we're out of jobs. So, you know, they, they viewed this just like we view AI art nowadays as, well, this is just really stealing our stuff. And later on, of course, the Academy Awards refused to even consider them for special effects because they said that using computers for special effects is cheating. That's amazing, right? Uh, one, one other thing I can mention about Black Hole was that the opening credits for Black Hole, where, where you see the sort of grid system and everything, that really? was the first use in a movie of computer animation.
0: Really? Yeah. So Disney's pioneering this stuff, so no wonder they're interested
1: in Tron. They, they did. They did have some experience with it. Uh,
2: wow. That
0: makes me want to go back and watch Black Hole. Maybe we should cover the Black Hole. We should cover the Black Hole. I think that's a great idea. Maximilian goes to hell.
1: Greetings. Yesterday's game was interrupted, although primary goal has not yet been achieved. Solution is near. Game time elapsed. 31 hours, 12 minutes, eight seconds. Estimated time remaining, 52 hours, 17 minutes, 10 seconds. What is the
0: primary goal? To win the game.
2: Okay, so they've gotten the green light for war games, and so now they need a director. Lawrence Lasker knew this guy from college named Martin Brest. Yes. He happened to be absolutely on fire at the moment as a new upcoming director. And so he gives him a call. Martin Brest says, I'm in, and they've got to go, right? they they've got a fantastic director. The only problem is is that Martin is wanting to take this script in a much darker place than Lawrence and Walter had intended it for it to go. So, yeah. So they end up arguing quite a bit about what should be done with various things. Martin is adding a lot to the script and manipulating a lot of things. And at some point they're in an argument, Lawrence and Walter are in an argument with Martin on the phone back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And finally, Martin is like, you know what? It's okay. Don't worry about it. It's good. We're all good. And then they hang up the phone and they said, uh, Walter said to Lawrence, it's all done. Uh, I think we might've just gotten fired. And sure enough, within the next hour, they get a call from their agent and they said, you're off the picture. Uh-huh. And so this is pretty hard blow. I mean, they started this project in 79. This is 82. They put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into developing this Story and now they're completely off of it. But it turns out that Martin was not getting along with the Studio either. Right. Now, what he did contribute was that it was his idea to put Allie in the second half of the movie. Like the original concept was, she sends him the money and he's just on his own after that. But they thought he needs somebody to talk David to. David needs somebody to talk to, right? How are we going to know what he's thinking if he doesn't have somebody to talk to? So he puts her flying in to meet David instead of just sending him money. Now the studio is unhappy with this dark vision. It's back and forth again. And eventually the studio says, Martin, I don't think we need you anymore, which is pretty rare, but he's like, okay, you know, I stand, stands on his principles, doesn't cower. I mean, he's on fire at the point at that moment. So why not? Right. So he tells Allie and Matthew, I don't think I'm going to be directing this movie anymore. And of course they're panicked. They think they're going to get fired. Right. Right. And so he ends up doing Okay. He lands on Beverly Hills Cop next. Like, which does, you know, $250 million or something. So he did okay. He did all right for this. We don't need to worry about him. Right. But they're now without a director. And so who do they go to? A guy that we've discussed before, a guy named John Adams. John Battam, we talked about
0: in our Saturday Night Fever episode. He's the guy who did that movie. Hey, listen to the 80s of John Battam, okay? Yeah. Listen to this. He does, of course, Saturday Night Fever. He does War Games. He does Blue Thunder in 1982. Blue Thunder. Remember that? He does Short Circuit. Wow. With Johnny Five and Steve Guttenberg and Ali Sheedy. Yeah. He does Stakeout in 1987. One of your favorites. I love Stakeout. It's one of my favorites. Emilio Estevez, Richard Dreyfuss- yeah uh and then of course he does bird on a wire with mel gibson and goldie hahn i think that's 1990 but still that's a string of great sort of fun movies that's a string of
2: sort of sort of fun, sort of sort of okay movies i you tell me you don't like short circuit uh so it was innovative for its time i think if we go back <laughs> and watch it now we will be less impressed than we were when we were then might be true that might be but true. It, it does
1: it does talk about a, a Computer becoming self-aware. You know, Johnny Five oh, is a lost. Great
2: point. Right. Yeah,
0: there you go. AI. Hey, plus you got to have a helicopter going upside down in Blue Thunder. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so John Batham is thrown into this project. He starts looking over what Martin Brest has done with the script. And he calls up Lawrence and Walter and says... Guys, I'm looking at what I'm guessing is probably a three hour long movie with this script. Do you guys have anything that you'd like to send me that I might be able to look at instead of this? And they said, yeah, we wrote a second draft that like nobody has looked at. He goes, send it over. And they're like, well, you know, guy down the hall has a copy. He goes, I'd prefer if you came and gave it to me. Yeah, give it directly to me. At that moment, they're like, maybe we're back in. He reads it. He says, this is the best script I've read so far. And. The writers are back in. They no longer have to watch somebody else making love to their girlfriend. <laughs> they they can enjoy making love to the girlfriend themselves. So, Battam brings on the one big change, other than, you know, going back to this second draft script, the one big change that Battam brings is he brings on Mr. Barry Corbin. Mr. McKittrick,
0: after very careful consideration, sir, I've come to the conclusion that your new defense system sucks. He steals every scene that he's in.
1: Absolutely. He, he, he was the best. I mean, he was based on the real life Nora in general at the time, and basically just ad-libbed his way through the whole movie, but came up with the most quotable lines of the movie as well.
0: Absolutely. They would come to him and they'd say, hey, can you say something colorful right here? And he's like, I'd piss on a spark plug if I thought of doing any good.
2: That's all his stuff. <laughs> a question might be, what happened to the guy that was originally cast in that part? Do you know? He was moved to like the side character. He's the guy. I can't even imagine like you've got the general's role. New director comes on and he says, okay, you're now going to be the general's helper. Yeah. Who doesn't say anything (laughs) like, and it's the, the actor's name is Michael Ensign. And I mean, he's been in a ton of stuff as well. Like when I saw him in the movie, I'm like, he's a pretty famous actor. I wonder why he's not saying anything. And I think at one point (laughs) probably improvised Barry
1: Corbin goes, where is that guy? Oh, there he is. I didn't see you there. <laughs> That's good. By the way, guys, do you know what happened to uh, one of the versions of the original script that Lasker wrote? What? Tell me. Oh, he rewrote it and it became Sneakers, the movie in 1992 with Robert Redford and Ben Kinsley.
2: Oh, perfect. Wow. I
0: love Sneakers, the man. The hacker movie, right? It is a hacker movie. Perfect. Redford, River Phoenix, City Poitier, Dan Aykroyd.
1: Love yeah, a, a lot of what Lasker originally wanted to write about, he couldn't put into war games. And so he took all of that and years later rewrote it into sneakers.
2: Fantastic. Wow, that's incredible.
1: By the way, if you don't
2: recognize the name Michael Ensign, he's the hotel clerk from Ghostbusters. Yes. He's also the guy in Titanic who's like, we're dressed in our best and
0: prepared to go down with the ship.
2: There you go. I know you would bring Titanic into it.
0: I love Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, let's talk first of all, Matthew Broderick in the lead role. He was actually filming Max Dugan Returns, which was his first movie at the time. Yeah. When he was hired to be in war games. Yeah. And when there's a change with the boss, he thought he was gonna get fired. Yeah. But they kept him, of course, Ali Sheedy, of course, you know her from Breakfast Club and St. Elmo's
2: Fire and Short Circuit. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting obviously John Hughes saw this movie because he cast Ali Sheedy in breakfast club. And then he cast Matthew Broderick and Ferris Bueller's day off mm-hmm. where again, he is using a computer to change his grades nine times.
0: Race! <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you who the guy that I think is the best in this movie. He, I mean, he's literally the best in every movie. Dabney Coleman brings his a game in this movie. He actually brings a sense of authority you really feel like you're in trouble when he's talking to
2: you. It is a true contest. It is a, it is a true contest of wills whenever he is arguing with Barry Corbin. I mean, those two guys are eminently confident and strong characters And those actors are the same way, and they both play them as perfect contrast to each other. I loved it.
1: And you really needed them at the beginning of the movie, because the second scene, they do a lot of trying to explain what's going on with the whole command and control system of NORAD in a two-minute scene, which is not easy. You know, you could have exposition that would last for half an hour, or you could have a 12-part series that would talk about everything that they were mentioning. But uh, it takes actors like, yeah, Dabney Coleman and Barry Corbin to go through that. And, and and that's when Corbin actually repeated one of the lines that the general actually said to the writers in the first place, right? It was, well, I sleep very well at night knowing those boys are down there. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, he had to throw in a Howdy duty reference. Was- <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, yeah, I think the actual general said, I sleep well at night knowing I'm in charge. Yeah. Let me ask this, Chad. Like is this a debate or has it ever been a debate among the the war game simulations of how much control do we put in the hands of the computers versus how much control do we put in the hands of the humans
1: i think theoretically yeah but that means by theoretically i mean you're always going to have some academics or people at the rand corporation saying hey maybe we could be more efficient we could have more control right but then you end up getting the walter matthew character from Failsafe, uh you know rather than the people who who are actually working at it and so the military has always been adamant no no we need we need men and now women you know to be in the the command and control that there has to be a clear set of controls and you got to have the men with the brass keys because they're the only ones who can stop it if Turning things go in the keys
2: wrong. sir by the way Early appearance by Michael Madsen and John Spencer. Yeah. Michael Madsen be chopping a guy's ear off in Reservoir Dogs in a few years, and John Spencer's running the West Wing. That's
1: right. And, and that, was, that was Madsen's first role. In fact, he he auditioned for it as a joke. He didn't think he, anything was going to come of it. But uh, yeah, he, he really made that first scene.
0: And then you've got Art LaFleur, who's the third guy in that scene. He's the guy who plays the babe in Sandlot. He's kind of a. Uh, Right, right. The guy that guy. Yeah.
2: Who's talking. Yeah. Talking to him as they come in. I remember that. Yeah. You've
0: got some other guys. I mean, so I mean, John Wood goes on to do Lady Hawk with Mm -hmm. Matthew Broderick. Yep. Okay. Barry Corbin. We talked about, he's the general who comes up with all the colorful lines. He was in any which way you can playing uh, strip poker with the old ladies, (laughs) which I can't wait to talk about with you. Right. Eddie. Did
2: you see the way he yanked
0: me out of the car like that? Well, look at your fingers! <laughs> <laughs> you have Eddie Deeson, the guy who plays Malvin. He's from Greece.
1: Wow, where'd you get this? I was trying to break into ProtoVision. I wanted to see the program for their new games.
2: And hey, Wait, Tim, I'm not through yet.
0: Remember you told me to tell you when you were acting rudely and insensitively? Remember that? You're doing it right now. And then, of course, you have William H. Macy. As a NORAD uh, officer. I missed, I missed that. He is just, he's in the background. Wow. Yeah. I missed that completely. One more name for you. You have James Tolkien, the principal from back to the future. And the guy in top gun, who's going to tell Maverick that he's going to fly a cargo ship full of rubber dog crap. Jeez. Didn't that guy ever have hair? Yeah. There you go. How about that? The cast. Incredibly strong. In war games. Yep. Oh, one more name for you. Jason Bernard.
2: He plays the judge in Liar Liar, the kind of the black officer. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing him and going, oh Liar Liar, Judge. I yep. know that guy. Yep. By the way, I don't know that everybody knows this, but John Wood wasn't just Stephen Falcon character, he was also the voice of the computer. So they realized that when text appears on a computer screen, unlike today, where everybody's used to reading text on a screen all the time, back then. 90% of people weren't reading whatever was up there. And so John Badham came up with this idea. Well, why don't we have, why don't we give the computer a voice, a speaker so that we can hear what it says. And by the way, one of the most memorable parts of the movie, yeah. I mean, that voice is incredible. John Wood is the guy who gives the voice for the computer. Yep. John Badham comes to him and says, okay, I want you to read these lines, but I want you to read them from right to left instead of left to right. And In John reverse Wood, order. Right? Yeah. And John Wood is like, Why would I do that? He goes, well, because the computer would not have the personality of speech that you have. And so if you read them backwards, you've got to basically isolate each word and it will sound like a computer where each word has been pre-recorded.
0: So rather than shall we play a game, it's play a game. Good try. Dang it. (laughs) I'd have to have it written down for me.
1: Yeah. And they they really had trouble even using the computers. No one knew how to type, right? So they, they had to come up with what is pretty common nowadays, that whatever key you press, it'll it'll write what's supposed to be in the script. But uh, at first, they, they were trying to do it with Matthew Broderick. He just didn't know how to type. And, and so they were trying to give him computers so he could practice. But of course, they also had to give him a Galaga so he could practice on that before the arcade scene. Focus a little more on the Galaga. I think so. I wish somebody <laughs> had given me a Galaga game to focus. <laughs> Okay,
2: so are we ready to talk casting on Tron then?
0: Let's talk casting on Tron. All right. Okay, so in the lead role of Kevin Flynn, we have Big Lebowski himself, Jeff Bridges. Yeah. Jeff Bridges, of course, has done True Grit, Against All Odds. He's Obadiah Stane and Iron Man. Last Picture Show. He's been in a million things is Han Solo. He's the gunslinger. He's the guy who breaks the rules. He's the guy the girl really secretly likes. I'll make the case that Rayori is Princess Leah,
2: Tron is Luke, and Sark is Darth Vader. Who's Gold Five? <laughs> is Gold Five Gold Five? Uh Gold Five is Gold Five. You I you if you watch this movie and are familiar in the least with Star Wars, you gotta be going, These guys were Star Wars fans. Yeah. Dumont
0: was clearly Obi Wan Kenobi.
2: Obviously. Yep. Yep. Bernard Hughes. Bernard Hughes, who was also Merlin in the TV series, and of course, the grandpa on The Lost Boys.
0: Ah, the bad thing about this place, is oh, there's too many damn vampires. All right, Bruce Boxleitner plays Tron. Yes. The only thing I know from him is that he was in Babylon 5. Yeah. Shout out to our buddy, Van Allen Plexico. I've never seen Babylon 5 in my life, <laughs> but he runs a podcast on Babylon 5. If you want to know about that, go listen to his stuff. Okay. Then, of course... You have Cindy Morgan, who plays Laura Baines.
2: She's Lacey Underalls from she's Caddyshack. She's Lacey Underalls. Like, Lacey I saw Under-Alls. her and I'm like, I feel like there's a hot girl behind those glasses somewhere. So I looked up the actress and sure enough, she's back there. Yes.
1: It's, it's, it's great that you could go from being a high high class socialite to being a computer programmer in <laughs> such a short period of time. Well, she wore the computer outfit well.
2: Yes, she did. She did.
0: By the way, the little dome thing that she had on, yeah. I, I heard heard her talking about this. So they would like glue it to her face, and her head, it looks like a like those little plastic things you put on your head so you don't have to wash your hair. Ladies wear the shower cap.
2: A shower there cap. Go. There
0: you go. Hey, it's a shower cap. <laughs> but they would kind of glue it to her face, and then as she would take it on and off, she began to get these little blisters on her face. She's like, Why can't I have a freaking hockey helmet like the guys get? So Towards the end of the movie, she actually is wearing a more of a hockey style. All right, you have David Warner who plays Ed Dillinger, He's also SARK. Yeah, he's Darth Vader.
2: Yeah, David Warner just passed away last year. I think we talked about how good he is at being a bad guy. He's a bad guy from the Time Bandit. Time Bandit. Bad man. guy in Titanic. He your is. favorite movie. Yes. Um, and what was the other one? He was a bad guy in another one too. Oh, he was. He was in one of the Star Trek. In one of the Star Trek, Yeah, it was, uh, I discovered country is Star Trek six. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's good at being a bad guy and he's a good bad guy in this one too. By the
0: way, Peter O'Toole was approached to play Sark in this movie. Peter O'Toole, Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. Right. He read the script and he's like, Hey guys, this is really good. I want to play Tron. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, ah, you're not really what we had in mind for Tron. Yeah, and uh, he really tried to sell them on the idea that he could play Tron. So he ended up getting neither. Yeah. So he got my
2: favorite ear <laughs> Yes.
0: Uh, also, for the role of Yori, they wanted Debbie Harry of
2: Blondie. Well, they have a similar look. I mean, I, they definitely have a similar similar look. I can see that.
0: Both would look good
2: in the you know
0: form fitting electronic
2: suit. Argument.
1: I I think Blondie music would have gone well in place of Journey.
0: That would have been an easy flip in, flip out. Right For there. sure.
2: Yeah. I, I feel like Flynn would have been a bigger Blondie fan than he would have been a Journey fan. Yep.
0: And then, of course, Bernard Hughes, Uncle Grandpa from the Lost Boys as Dumont. Call him Uncle Grandpa? Uncle Grandpa.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what is that?
0: Mean? Don't touch my Oreos. <laughs> okay. And that's pretty much it in Tron. I mean, you got a couple other guys. One right. guy plays Ram and. One guy plays an accountant who gets killed in 10 seconds, but you know, right. So Why there's not really lie. not that much going on cast wise in Tron.
2: Yeah. So let's talk about the movies themselves. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on Tron just a little bit. You mentioned that there's obviously some significant theological questions and impacts going on here. He's a guy who is comes from above, goes down to the world below, and is a user incarnate. I like it. And, yeah. and the powers that be bear a strong similarity to the Roman empire and the games that they would have the peasants and the other gladiators yeah. play yeah. all very similar and requires them to renounce their belief in this silly superstition yep. or they're going to get the standard substandard training or they can renounce it and have the expert training. Right, Right. Right. And the guys even say, you know, do you, you really believe in the users? And the guy says, yeah, I mean, if I don't have a user who created me. Right. So it's very, it has a lot of those religious quotes. Sure. What was kind of interesting to me and and Chad, you touched on this just a little bit, but we all kind of have from almost our inception, a little personality that belongs in the computer system. Like from the time that we are born, we are immediately entered into a computer database as a number, our social security number, right? Like I have, I had this weird case where I was dealing with a guy who even though he was alive, he appeared to be dead because somehow in the computer system, they had decided he was dead and he had no way to prove that he was alive because <laughs> the computers said he was dead. Uh-huh. So it's a very interesting concept that we really are these little guys Running around a, an avatar computer person that is us, that's there from our birth until our death. It's and then
1: you, you add the new technology of like Facebook and social media who are keeping track of everywhere we go and what we buy and who our friends are. And they have their own idea of who we are, right? And sometimes it's even a better idea. They they know what we want to buy. They know what we want to see next. I, I think Meta is a little confused over where I live. Uh, but th- that's probably <laughs> well, you true. Move around people. a lot, <laughs> <laughs> but but it's true. Those identities exist, right? And th- there are other computers that keep track of our credit scores and judges based upon that. And then there's a sort of online identities. You know, you can even ask if you're better known on the internet. You can ask Chat GPT. You know, who who is so and so, and then they'll come up with an idea of well, this person, right? And if people do a search for for my name you get really different results depending upon which keyword you use with it. Because there are other Chad Briggses out there. Um, median out, out there,
2: there with your name as well. Yeah. I looked you up. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, so uh, whenever you delete something from Facebook, you have a little man in the computer who throws a disc at it and it blows up. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, everybody, that does it for our first part of the Tron versus War Games series. We are going to be back next week chad our expert guest is going to be with us and we are going to be talking about real life war games versus what we saw in the movie and how close those might be please join us for that episode chad as i mentioned before not only is a super genius but also a patreon subscriber so if you want to be like the other super geniuses in the world be sure and check out our patreon page it's patreon.com back shirley podcast where you can sign up for as little as five bucks a month. And like Chad's favorite episode of aha, take on me. (laughs) You get to hear our analysis of various one hit wonders and other random choices by Jason (laughs) that the general public doesn't get to hear just our Patreon subscribers. So be sure and check us out there. If you don't have the funds to do that, do us a favor and hit a review, hit a five-star review, write us a review. We'll see you guys here next week. Chad, you coming back? I'll be here.
0: Awesome, man. Bye, guys.